0: I'm Mel Stewart, and this is the GMN Podcast. And I have some questions for folks out there today. I want to know, are you someone who loves to be on the ball field or on the pool deck and stand next to somebody and, and, and watch your sport, be a part of the culture and love that conversation? But have you also been that person who's been standing there and you look to the right or the left and you realize you're standing next to an icon and you understand, oh no, I'm going to learn more than I've ever thought I could learn. <laughs> about this sport that I love. Today, that's going to be your experience. Today, we have the icon of icons, nine time Olympic gold medalist, Mark Spitz. Thank you, Mel. <music> Try to give me a cheer or something, buddy. You got me beat. You got a
1: gold medal behind your head. I mean I mean I, I I I've never won a medal that large, to be honest with you. So so if you
0: have if you have nine Olympic medals, you never have to put a medal behind your head. If you have a measly two gold medals, you have to put it behind your head so people go, Oh yeah, that, that guy won one too.
1: I think it's important for your for your listeners to understand that being an Olympian is important. That is a major accomplishment, and it's a, a an exclusive fraternity of people. Whether you're a swimmer or from whatever sport, um, I have always said I was just an ordinary guy that happened to at the right moment did an extraordinary set of things, and um, I obviously trained hard for that, and I I was rewarded obviously for my energies and my efforts. But I mean, I. I before there was a Michael Phelps didn't want to be considered that uh, I'm the benchmark of what an accomplishment means and if you didn't win more medals or the same as I did that 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 wasn't good enough and I I think that um, I'm so happy that Michael took over the reins of that sense of responsibility Um, and yet it proved I guess and I always said this um, I don't realized how good I might have been or was until somebody else came along and, and beat my record and and of course we've seen that and the cliche of beating records is they're made to, to be broken by somebody. And, um, and along the way you build great relationships. And so my friendships are more important than my gold medals that I made from swimming. Definitely.
0: Well, we're going to get into that and we're going to get into, into some interesting stories, but it's, uh, I appreciate that. You know, what's interesting is that you, you had this, you know, for 36 years, that was the rain for 36 years. Um, It was it was something that loomed large in everyone's mind, certainly from from my my period of time. So looking through my lens as a child, I woke up in the morning and and you you probably know what I'm going to say. I woke up and my the first thing I saw was the Mark Spitz poster, seven gold medals, (laughs) 1972, seven world records. And and when I was a child, I I was swimming year round at five, you know, from five to twelve everything that i did when i pushed off the wall was all right i'm mark spitz i'm mark spitz now i'm going like i was a superhero did you have someone like that in your life someone that inspired you so much i think so i
1: i think that i didn't really want to admit it but um swimming at santa clara swim club with george haynes who was an olympic coach several times before i made the olympics in 1968 my first olympics he had a swimmer in 1964 named Don Schulander that went to the Tokyo games and won four gold medals. And so um, in, at the age of 15, uh, swimming at Santa Clara, um, he, he didn't swim that year um, in 1965 because he had evidently got mononucleosis. So he took that year off. And I saw him for the first time in 1966 when I was 16. And uh, he would then have been 20. He was four years older than me. And he came to the pool after being at Yale for the summer program and swimming long course with uh, Santa Clara. And George put me in a lane right next to him. And that was a a big honor. Um, I mean, I was looking at his feet uh, a lot. Um, Even though I was leading my lane, I I really couldn't keep up with him. Um, But the following year, when I was 17, I was kind of looking at him like I was at least in view of his swimsuit. And so uh, he he sort of inspired me. As a matter of fact, so much so that um, <laughs> there was this relay competition at the very beginning of the season uh, called the San Leandro Relays. And it was all kinds of stupid relays, like everybody would swim a butterfly leg and backstroke and so on. But there was this one particular event called the Don Showlander 400 because he was the world record holder. And they wanted to have something that was newsworthy that... Could relate to something that had to do with a, a legal swimming distance, like the four hundred meter freestyle, and since he was there and that he drew the press and newspapers and television, we swam this race, and my good friend Fred Haywood said to me, who was a backstroker who made the Pan Am games as a matter of fact uh, that year said uh What are you going to do? I said, I'm swimming eight laps and I'm getting in my car. You're in the car. We're going to go back to Santa Clara. And that's the end of the the swimming meet. We were sitting here in the sun for two days fooling around. And to make this story super short, I basically broke Don Schoenander's world record um, by over two seconds. And George basically grabbed me and whispered in my ear right after. He says, you don't have to say anything to Don. He understands what just happened. Um, You just went from the hunter to the hunted and Mel. I mean, when I heard that, I still remembered this and get a chill thinking, what do you mean by that? And I realized the rest of what he said to me was, now your work is cut out for you. We're going to see what you can do now while everybody else is going to chase you. So it was a great experience having him as an inspiration and to break one of his world records, obviously, and swimming with him for two years straight. So, yeah, I had somebody to look at every single day, which could get to your goat a little bit, you know. He's a pretty cool guy. I met him. yeah, he, uh, he really is. You know, he's, he's he was cooler than me because he was four years older and he was in college and he went to Yale, you know what I mean? And I
0: wasn't even thinking about college when I was 17. I was still a junior in high school. I met him at an award show and uh he was he was dressed up sitting there and he had a he had, he had a cocktail and it's as if he was holding court and uh it felt like i was talking <laughs> to a piece of history i it was a it was a brief interlude but it was a nice guy but it's uh, it's interesting that that he was your guy in this 400 meter free mm-hmm. did you have any clue that you were on world record pace did you have any idea because this is your first one <laughs> Okay. So um, my time from the year before,
1: give you an idea of times. Um, the world record was like 4 4 And I think my best time was like four sixteen. I think it was like the 18th fastest time. I mean, when I was in the nationals before, I mean, they didn't even have consolations, but I mean, I wasn't even close to making the finals. And so, um, you know, it's the beginning of the season, Mel. I mean, who's going to drop their best time and shaved and tapered. And I mean, this wasn't even in my thoughts. I'm a, Although I did grow a little bit, but I didn't calculate that in. And, and neither did George Haynes calculate in that I would be dropping my times like that. And I think what it was is this, my first recollection of breaking a world record was if I would have known I was going that fast, I think I could have started my sprint and pressure on my arms a lot sooner. But then, After the fact, I tried doing that, and that doesn't help either. So, I mean, it was just a perfect race at a perfect time where I wasn't worried about anything. And we've spoken before, and I told you that I remembered the warmup that I did, which was a stupid, crazy warmup on that day. And I held on to that, and I did that same warmup every time I got into an international competition or where I was expected maybe to be, you know, to win a race. I did that warm-up. And one of the reasons I did that warm-up was, is at the end of the warm-up, I felt fantastic. It meant that the race, relatively to me in my mind, was gonna be easy to win. And if I didn't feel so good after that warm-up, then I knew I had to push myself past that pressure of, this race is gonna hurt a little bit more than what I would expect. But knowing that upfront before I took the starters you know gun, that made all the big difference in the world of my performance and my consistency of performing.
0: Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, are you ready to hear the unpacking of the Mark Spitz (laughs) warm-up? Mark, what was your warm-up? Well, at the very beginning, I would swim a 400 free. That's
1: usually what I started out doing. But on this one particular day, I swam a lap and a half freestyle. And then in the middle of the pool, I flipped over to a 50 back, which put me back into the middle of the pool again. And then I went uh, 50 breast, and I was back in the middle of the pool. And then I went a 50 fly, and I was back in the middle of the pool. Then I did the back and the breast again, back in the middle of the pool. And then I swam my last lap and a half. So it was crazy. And then I would do the four push off 50s, and I would do either two or four starts from a block, you know, for pace, you know, in the outside lane like they do with your coach. if it was 100, I would only do two. If it was a 200 race, I would do four. And that was it. And I'd get out. And another rule that I did was, if I was out of the water for more than an hour before my event, I'd get back in the water for about five or six minutes just to swim a couple laps in the warm-up pool. I didn't let myself get further than that, you know, from uh, not being in the water.
0: Is, is, how, how, I'm, 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 you know, In terms of math, I, I have an SEC education. You've got an IU education. Your math is better than mine. How far was that? How far was, what was your total warm up?
1: At the most, two thousand. Oh, I did some kicking. I did. I did a two hundred kick, and then I did a couple little pulls. You know, um, like drag my feet. In, um, in, you know, that extra two hundred swimming. Maybe I would do like, yeah, you i know, sprint off the wall for twelve strokes, and then I'd. Cruise. I mean, you know, in a warm-up in a pool, there's a lot of people in the pool. I mean, you just can't be just you know hauling rear ends and crawling up somebody and trying to pass them because there's at least five other guys coming the other direction. I mean, you're going to get hit in the face. So you got to just kind of like mold in. Um, I mean, part of it's ceremonial. I mean, there's 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 no taper in the warm-up. I mean, there's there's no conditioning in the warm-up. It's just simply to get in there and get familiar with uh, you know, what the pool looks like. You know, the turns and how cloudy it is or clear it is. What the temperature of the water is, you know. I told you when you told me this that that was a dumb warm up, and it sounded ridiculous. Oh, it's totally (laughs) dumb, but it was the only thing that I kept hanging on to all these years, you know. I mean, you've got to go back to a, you got to go back to home base, you know. I mean, if you want to, if you're in baseball, you got to stand up at home plate to be able to hit the ball. I mean, you can't say, well, I'd like to hit the ball from third base today, and just have the pitcher turn around. I mean, so my home base was to do this, and then I don't, and then stop worrying. Stop worrying about all this other peripheral stuff. I mean, we're psychosomatic to begin with as swimmers, you know what I mean? Because there's so many
0: moving parts to try to get up for a particular race, you know. It, it's been listening to it a second time, hearing it a second time. It actually sounds like a great warm-up. So I, I, I apologize. I was wrong. Now, now I hear it a second time. <laughs> it makes sense. But this, but this is the warm-up you took through your seventy-two performance, your your seven goals. I, I, seven I did. Record.
1: I I broke my first world record. Uh, I don't know whether it was in June or whenever it was in nineteen sixty-seven, and that was the same warm-up I did at international meets and big meets uh, through the last race of the Olympics, uh, the medley relay that I swam in in Munich. So what can I say? Um, you know, I mean, look, a lot of people out in the audience have one event. Um, you can still do the same thing. Um, Over my career, I learned that I could swim several events, but I always had the same warm-up. And unlike you, Mel, that actually, and I asked you this question before, like, how did you decide to breathe, you know, on the right side, butterfly? Um, I never liked doing butterfly unless it was only a 50. Even I hated doing hundreds. And because my stroke would deteriorate immensely if I was doing repeat hundreds or 200s, and I said to my coaches, whether or not it was George Haynes, or it was Sherm Chavor, um, or it was Doc Councilman, why am I practicing learning how to do bad technique? I'm going to be the best conditioned bad technique swimmer in the world, which translates to I'm going to be swimming slow, but I'm going to be in shape doing it. And they kind of agreed. So I would only like to do sprint butterflies. You know, well, it, would, it worked for me. I, uh, you know, in today's working out I don't know if that would work I mean I did swim 3 200 flies in workout a week before the Olympic trials in 1972 and the the order that was Shermshire was my coach he says here's what I want you to do it was the nighttime workout we we're in the middle of the taper he says I want you to warm up and by the way when I warmed up in workout I never did that funny warm up I'm talking about in a meet but I warmed up and he says I want you to do 3 200 flies on the 5 minutes I want you, the first one, to take the first 100 out, this is all from a push, in a fast pace, like you're actually in a race, and then you loaf the next 100. But just keep in mind that in five minutes, you know, you gotta run the next one. Then I want you to reverse that. I want you to reverse that and sort of like, just get through the first 100, and then try to be on what the pace would feel like as far as pain for the second 100. And then the last one, I just want you to blow it out. Just see what you can do. The world record at that time, that I held was like 201 something. And from a push, I broke my world record in workout. So I knew I was ready to go to the Olympic trials. As a matter of fact, one of my biggest disappointments was is that I didn't break two minutes because of that and actually the real race. So to make a long story short, um, it goes back to what my father once said to me, you swim swimming to meet like you practice. So if you do great times and you can race and practice, then you can expect to do that. If you don't do that in practice, then how can you call on that to have confidence that you're going to be swimming fast in a meet? So Gary Hall, for an example, was a great workout swimmer. And, um, you know, and 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 I he was my biggest nemesis, you know, in the latter part of my career. I mean, he at any time could beat me in the 200 fly for sure. I mean, I never told him that, but I just knew that in the back of my mind. Jerry Heidenreich for the 100 free, Roland Mathis for the 100 fly, Um, even though he was known as a backstroker, he was still the second fastest 100 flyer. Um, I mean, I always I was always worried about who was in the race, no doubt about it.
0: What's fascinating is that throughout the late 60s into the 70s and into the 80s, the culture of swim was to just grind it out and do as much training as possible. And, uh, and that was kind of pervasive across the culture of the sport that changed in the nineties and into the thousand, th- 2000s, and up to present day, It slowly trended toward what you're describing, which is you train the way you race, you're laying down neural pathways when you work out that are going to be the ones that you call on when you're racing. So they want you to be high in the water. They want you to be intense. And it's fascinating that you you're you know, you're hearing it from your dad, Sharm Chavor, your coaches were doing this with you decades ahead of everybody else. I don't know if you've ever talked about this with anybody, but i'm I'm kind of surprised to hear it. I thought that you probably just did a lot of grinding. It sounds like you were doing some very high level stuff. listen to me my high level
1: thoughts of training was last in first out of the pool that means translated very very specifically, if I could get away with swimming less laps and train less and still figure out how to get to the finish line first, this was my goal. I mean, maybe this was a game I played. I mean, I certainly laid down some good repeats and I tried to do something in a workout that was like, you know, really beyond the call of what was expected from the coach. As an example, and I've talked to kids about, you know, how did you train? I go, well, for an example, if if the coach gave me an assignment for the, the whole group to swim 10 100s on the 130. And he says, I want you to start off like at uh, 110, and and by the last one, I want you to be going one minute. Well, I sort of would do that, but not exactly the way everybody else would do it. They would just go 110, 19, 18. And as you move through this process, it became more difficult because you were actually increasing your speed, and um, even though you got more rest, the one extra second rest didn't overcome the energy it took to go one second faster. So I would go like 110, 110, 115, 110, slip one in, you know, and then I'd go 55 and then I'd go, i catch up back up with them like one oh, you know, one six, and then I'd go 52 and then I'd go one four, one three, and then I'd go like try to break one, break 50 for the last one. So this was a form of my racing. And nobody was paying attention to what I was doing, but it obviously paid off.
0: So that's that, that's how I would interpret what to do. It sounds like you focused your energy and you burned your jets, and uh, and that did a lot for your brain. Yeah, it sounds so, like I mean some genius. You,
1: know, it, you know it's funny I, I can relate to something about when we used to I love doing broken swims like broken two hundred you know where we'd leave at the bottom of the clock, you know, so that the first one that left you just look up at the time and that's your time. You already did the subtraction, the, the you know, the, the three 10 second rests. And the coach would always say, I want you to go 10 seconds faster on the next one. So one day at master's swimming, uh, which I was involved with, the coach couldn't be there. And he said, look at can you do the workout for me? And it happened to be a Wednesday. And I didn't realize this, that Wednesdays was IM day. Um, And so I said, we're gonna go broken 200s. I want you to take your first time. And I didn't tell them what was gonna happen. I said, now I want you to go 10 seconds faster. And they go, "Well, how am I gonna do that? I says, well, you can either do this. I said, you can cheat by two and a half seconds on the rest or you can actually try to actually swim two and a half seconds faster. I said, so you're either gonna give it to me emotionally or you are gonna give it to me physically? But I want it to be 10 seconds faster, your choice. And well, how are we gonna do that? I said, well, look at, I said, it doesn't matter whether you're cheating or not. You're gonna actually get two and a half seconds less rest, which is gonna be that much more difficult. So you are given it to me physically, whether you like it or not. So emotionally, if you're just cheating because you're just leaving two seconds faster, I'm gonna get something out of you. And everybody in the pool at Masters went way faster than 10 seconds. And they had no idea I was gonna ask them to do a second one. So by their innocence alone, they were actually learning something intuitively when i created that scenario and somehow i think that when i look back at my swimming past i must have been doing that gameplay with my mind to say what and why can i do something and how can i do something to get a little bit more faster times i'm not swimming melodically just to say i made the workout and i swam 5000 meters today i want to say well you know how do i get swimming faster and i think
0: that that's what it was so the workout was a race for me I think you buried the lead on 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 that on that answer. It, it, this is where you buried the lead. So someone's coaching masters; they can't coach. And Mark Spitz shows up that day to be the coach on deck. What what masters team was this? Oh wait, wait. So I forgot
1: the I forgot the funny thing. So they said, Coach, why are we doing freestyle broken two hundred freestyles? It's I M day, and I said, Guess what? I'm glad you pointed out. I am a champion, and that's not what we're doing today. <laughs> It's oh, I, I am individual medley. We can work on all the other strokes.
0: <laughs> I get it. I, I just think, I just think it's, I, I, that's kind of cool that, um, your master swimmer and Mark Spitz shows up on deck to, to be your coach <laughs> that day. That's like, people pay a lot of money for that. <laughs> you not, just showed up. I don't, I don't know about that, but you know, I mean, I think that my
1: coaches worked with me, um, you know, the latter part of my career, I think, is the same as what maybe Michael Phelps was, yours, Mel, that the coach, they're not coaching you. They're, they're your confidant. They're, they're, they're your mentor. They're, they're not necessarily your babysitter, but they're making sure you get to the pool. And they're paying attention to you enough to keep you motivated because you don't really need a lot of motivation once you're at the pool. The hardest part was to get to the pool every day.
0: You 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 kind of covered the training aspects, and and it's and I was going to cover that later because I wanted to hear you know just some philosophy and 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 uh, and, and what you did. i and i I felt like you might do something differently because every time you talk to someone who's great, they're doing something that sounds a little crazy, but it's it gives them it, it's it's a big difference when it comes to performance. What I really wanted to get into was I wanted to to go back <laughs> into history. And I want to hear about I want to hear about your your early days, and because uh, you shared a little bit of, of that with me, but the early days in terms of just uh, you know your kid that y- your first engagement with the water, um, you know where did it all start? I can remember
1: like it was yesterday. It was 1959. We just you know school had ended, uh, grammar school, and my best friend that lived across the street. His mother and my mother put us into a camp YMCA program because it was a new YMCA in Sacramento that had just opened up with a brand new pool and there was all kinds of activities. So they dropped us off at nine in the morning and picked us up at three in the afternoon. And the first day I came home sort of like a little bit upset because one of the activities was arts and crafts. And in it, what we did in that arts and crafts was I had a little piece of copper and I put like sand on it and I put it in an enclave and I was making basically earrings for my mom. And so the global sense of what this nine-year-old was going to do me was I'm making jewelry for my mom. This isn't going to be too much fun. I love my mom, but it was like, I'm a guy. I just want to go out and, you know, kick the ball, do stuff, you know, like what you do at a camp. This is my first experience, but they didn't have us in the swimming pool because the pool had just been finished and they were filling it up with water. So my mom called over there and says, well, what about the swimming program? That was a big highlight that you guys were talking about. They said, well, are be ready to swim here in a couple of days? So on that day, they gave up the arts and crafts program and they put that class and subsequent classes at the pool. And there was a guy that was pretty famous. They were touting his name was Paul Heron. He had just swum the English Channel, I think, in a record crossing. Um, and he was the swimming instructor and the athletic director for that program. So he had everybody line up. On the width of the pool or the length of the pool to swim and get in the water and hold on alphabetically and the instruction was swim across the pool i would like to see how you guys swim so i can put you in groups well my friend's last name was cooper and he swam and what does your best friend do that's in the program with you he stopped halfway and he says ah showboating you know i got to go first and no big deal And everybody else was doing similar things. Well, with the name of Spitz, I was one of the last ones to be chosen. And I was a scrawny little kid. And the water wasn't really hot. It hadn't been heated enough yet. So when I swam across the pool, I didn't stop. Well, little did I know, Mel, that this guy was looking at who didn't stop. And there was about four of us that didn't stop in that class. And we were asked if we wanted to go out for the swim team. And his subsequent classes, then he had the same result. So at the end of the day, he had his 20 kids that he was looking at. My kid, my friend, basically wasn't in the swimming program. And so I got introduced to the swimming program. Um, And that's how I became a swimmer. Otherwise, I would have never known. At the end of about six weeks, there was a little novice meet that I went to. um, And I swam, I think it was the 25-yard free or whatever it was. Uh, When I got to that meet, there were a bunch of people with sleeping bags and cots, and they were all rested and all kinds of like sweats. And I just came in a pair of jeans or shorts or whatever it was. We didn't know anything. And my mom heard my name called from one of it was a time result meet only. And they said, hey, you need to stand here, Mark. And there were three circles on the deck, six, five, four. And then there was a little staircase, three, two, one. And I was put on number five and I was given a purple ribbon. And obviously it said fifth. And I kind of looked to my left and I go, God, that guy is standing on the top step. He's much higher than me. and He got a blue ribbon. I came back and handed that purple ribbon to my mom and it had a profound effect. I said, I think I'd like to go and get a blue ribbon. And it had dawned on me at that time at nine years old that, well, I guess if I swim and it was a time and if I swim a faster time, I can stand on the award stand. And that was my first inkling of, hey, cause and effect. Well, to this day, I don't like purple.
0: That was the color <laughs> of the ribbon. And that's a like, true story. That's, that's a great story. But, but a whole lot happened between that and by the time well, you were yeah, Guess tenure. what? And Sherm Chavor was at that meet, kind of like a re- college recruit,
1: and went up to my dad and said, hey, I like the way your son swims, even with the fifth place. He says, I got this club, you know, across town called Arden Hills. Why don't you have him come swim?" And my folks said, well, you know, that's a big drive, you know, and they're just getting introduced to what, you know, parenting is about with if somebody's going to be an athlete. And there was just age group swimming had only been in his infancy for about one year. And, uh, you know, he explained this to my folks. And my father says, well, but you know, we can't afford to belong to a country club. He says, no, he says, I'll give your son a scholarship. I just like the way he's swimming. Well, of course, Sherm Shavor became a very inspiration to me. Uh, I swam for him uh, at the age of 10 that following uh, spring and summer. And at the end of that, time frame, I had 17 National Age Group records as a 10-year-old. And somebody says, well, how could you do that? Well, in those days, they had 25-yard pools. They had 20-yard pools. They had 33-yard pools. And they had pools like at Fly Shacker, which was this pool in San Francisco that was like 440 yards. So they had actually pools where you'd have a rope finish. So if you swam a 50-free or a a hundred free, for example, you could do it in a 25 yard pool, a 25 meter pool, a 20 yard pool by swimming, you know, the necessary laps, five. And so there were all these different types of pools you could break records in. So my, my event was basically freestyle back in those days. So that was inspiring. I wasn't a bench warmer, like say playing Little League. And all the people around me were doing the same thing. So it was like, okay, we'll come back the next year. So I came back as an 11 year old, but the problem was I didn't grow much. And I was in the 11 and 12 year old category, and everybody was just whomping me as a 12 year old. I mean, some people I think were even shaving, you know? They might have even been driving carpool.
0: I don't know. <laughs> you had one age group uh, time that was like the, the number one for the, the world in age group. And I'm dead. Anyway, that's what I read. And so did someone track the world age group rankings? They had Swimming right. World. Um, they'd had world.
1: just come out and that's what they did. And they did a good job of doing that. You know, I, I was once asked a question after the Olympics, after 72, some woman came up and said, you know, my kid is a swimmer and he's like 12 years old and he's, you know, he's uh, doing this. Uh, he's, he's like a second, you know, on the swim team and, uh, you know, how do I get him to be a better swimmer? You know, and, and his time in the, uh, in, the, in the 50 free is like 32 seconds. And I said, well, I said, look, I don't remember a lot of my times, but I do remember one particular time. I said, here's my answer. Who is the fastest person in the city and what team do they swim on? Maybe you ought to look at going to that club. Who's the fastest in the state? Maybe you should change towns. Maybe you should look at who's the fastest in the United States. It's changed states. I said, that's what's done at some time with people. And I can cite this, you know, Pete Sampras and tennis. His folks moved from Palos Verdes to Florida. Uh, Dorothy Hamill's parents moved to Colorado Springs. Don Scholander's mom put him at Santa Clara Swim Club in California from Lake Oswego, Oregon. And Mark Spitz's family moved to Santa Clara um, because that's where the action was. I said, but as far as your kid is concerned at 12 years old, I said, I haven't been in the water for 40 some odd years. That was about back then. I said, but I'll tell you a time that I remember that I did. I had the national age group record as a 10 year old, I think, in the 50 freestyle, which was the event that your son does 32 seconds. I said, and my time was 28 2 Now, I know that they've improved upon that. So in answer to what your question is, I think it's necessary to figure out how to get a better coach, perhaps. I'm not saying that he's a bad coach, I don't know anything about him, but if you want your kid to swim faster than 32 seconds, which as the age of 12 is certainly slow because I was going considerably faster 40 years before, these are the facts. Sometimes the facts are very hard to absorb when parents are observing their kids Um, And I thought I said it the politest way. A number of years later, about six years later, this kid comes up to me and said, you know, you talked to my mother in such and such a town and you told her exactly the story. And this person was an NCAA champion you know, as a, as as a sophomore. I said, did you move towns? He said, no, we actually changed coaches. The whole club brought in this coach and recruited this coach. So there is an effect that's if somebody listens, there's always not a guarantee. So, I mean, to me, this was a very rewarding experience, but I learned from that because I felt self-conscious that I wouldn't do that again. I would just say, you know, just work on, Getting your kid to practice every day—that's keep them motivated. That's my answer. You know, there's only about five percent of us that make it to the top. And look, there's what twelve thousand athletes to go to the Olympic Games in the in the two hundred and fifty contested sports. There's about two hundred and fifty gold medals that are awarded. Um, There are some sports like basketball that have the 10 medals, because if you win, there's 10 people allowed to be on the team, only five on the court. But the fact is that there's about a thousand medals that are gold medals, thousand silver and a thousand bronze. So what does that make? And when you add that up, that's about 5 percent, 10 percent of the athletes are going to get medals. What does that mean for everybody else? And I think that we share a common thing that we're all Olympians. That's the first and foremost. And along that journey, if you're lucky enough to come away with a medal, that's just an added thing. But the impact of being an Olympian and going back to your community to inspire people to do something more than they would have thought that they could accomplish from the day before is what the Olympics is all about. And if by chance you can show them a medal, well, that makes it more exciting, but not more valid. And I think that's what we're talking about here.
0: Agreed. And I heard the same thing from John Neighbor. and I also responded to him, but medals matter. <laughs> you know, I think I'm they joking. might. I'm joking.
1: I, I mean, I think they might, if you're capable of doing that. I mean, you know, somebody asked me a funny question, Mel, that was in, um, in uh, the, the Olympic games that was in uh, Australia in 2000, in Sydney. Um, I was at a press conference prior to the swimming, and they said, well, what do you think, Mark, your greatest accomplishment was? So rather than that be embarrassing to the person that asked the question, um, I said, well, I would say that personally, I would say probably winning seven gold medals in 1972 would, would certainly top the list there, wouldn't it? And it wasn't the Michael Phelps yet. He was actually swimming in those Olympics, his first Olympics. Um, so nobody, you know, had him in, in their, their crosshairs at the time. Um, and the guy said, no, I don't think that was. And I'm going, OK, what was? And he says, well, swimming doesn't have statistics like baseball, you know, runs batted in, all that sort of stuff. But he says, I kind of calculated that from the first time you broke a world record when you were 17 and you got up on the starting block at international meets uh, from then until you retired at the age of 22, you had like 35 world records, but you were on the block about 75 times. So statistically about 50% of the time you broke a world record. He said, but the last two years of your career, you won every single race and you had 19 world records. So why would you not expect to be successful in 1972? I said, oh, that's an interesting statistic. And you know, a while back, Mel, we talked about this. And I think that the difference between a Michael Phelps or myself or you or anybody that has been at the podium with a gold medal and several times, like a Tiger Woods, even in, in tennis, I mean, in uh, uh, golf. we're only at that moment five percent better. You look at my times and my speed. I mean, in Michael, maybe he was even less than five percent, because he was winning races by hundreds of a second. I mean, I was able to win races maybe by a second or something like that at times or half a second. But, but just in general, we just made it a point to always make sure that when we came to the pool that we were always that five percent better. So it's the consistency of being repetitive in the success of winning and getting on the podium in first place that makes the illusion of our greatness even greater. When statistically, not really that great. That's why I always feared every time I went to the pool that Gary Hall was gonna beat me or Roland Mathis was gonna beat me in the 100 fly. And Jerry Heidenreich was gonna beat me in the 100 in the free. I never thought a moment that I would just pass them off to the pasture that that wasn't gonna happen. Um, but in my preparation and my psych and doing my stupid warm up, <laughs> I was prepared.